be highly spirit. So I, I want to just um, thank you for tuning in this morning, being interested in what we are doing. We are lit. Uh, Tiffany Fondo, who is a brilliant uh, librarian, uh, is the really true visionary behind this project. So Tiffany, kind of share with them a little bit uh, more about the vision for uh, We Are Here Lit. So this space is to really um, ground young boys and young black men in their identity and confirming their um, confirming the need and advocacy for literacy on their behalf. Um, we also want them to be advocates for the community. And the only way to do so is to build them up through literacy as a foundation, because literacy means many things, not just reading the word, but financial literacy, health literacy. There's all types of literacy, but until they understand those foundational skills, they cannot happen. So from the different um, areas of advocacy, meaning through academics, through the publishing industry, through K-12 education, through higher ed, through all those different avenues, we need to work a little more collectively um, to advocate for young black men uh, in literacy. So this is a space where we share information from all those avenues in order to support um, literacy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And this is a special month, Women's History Month. And uh, hey, um, I, I think Women's History Month is 365. Uh, like they say, women hold up the world. Women bring life into this world. And so uh, just to say we're celebrating Women's History Month, again, um, we are here lit. We recognize that women make contributions 365, you know, yes. but uh, since the world wants to celebrate International Women's Day as well as Women's History Month, we thought, hey, why don't we, you know, uh, do the same? And uh, hey, we think we have someone that we invited and she's agreed to be a part of. Uh, we are here lit uh, because of the work that she's done over the years. Uh, creating books that our children, not just our boys, but uh, as an adult, I have several of her, her books. Uh, schools around the country, libraries around the country, museums around the country, all have her books. And so I want to give a, 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 a warm welcome, thank you to someone I've worked with in the past, and I'm so glad I met her, uh, Carol Boston Weatherford. Thank you so much for joining us again, joining me again, and being a part of uh, this vision we have to empower uh, Black boys of our leadership. And I'm so happy to be here. And of course, I, I brought with me Exhibit A. I should say Exhibit <laughs> J, my son, Jeffrey wow. um, Because he, yes. is, he is an example of what happened, what can happen when boys are readers and they grow into men who can become leaders and artists and uh, and 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 and, and continual learners really you know he's constantly learn you know learning seeking out new knowledge and sharing it with other people so I'm I'm just pleased and proud to have him with me this morning. Yes, thank you both so much. And just to have a plug, they are both represented, and you can fly. Um, Miss Boston Weatherford, the author, and Jeffrey, the illustrator. So thank you both for being here. We appreciate you so much. And we're here today to, to, to celebrate the work because uh, and your contributions during Women History Month because you've really given a voice to, um, to Black culture and for children. 
And so it's, it's important that we recognize um, you for doing that. So I, I would like to start off today by asking you, um, especially within this last week, what is it like being a black woman today for you? Um, when uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, I'm gonna go back past the week because the week, uh, the week, like like Cory Booker said, you know, this this past week would would steal your joy if you let it. So I'm gonna go back to when Katanji Brown Jackson was was nominated by Biden. I didn't realize how moved I was going to be. I had um, I'm very aware of. Um, the history, the legal history of African-Americans in this country, uh, not only because I've written books about it, but I also used to be director of communications for the National Bar Association. And so some of the uh, you know, civil rights lawyers of the past and people who went on, have gone on to make a name for themselves um, as uh, freedom fighters in the legal arena today, I came in contact when I was probably about Jeffrey's age. So when Biden first nominated, um, Katanji Brown Jackson and I watched the ceremony. Well, before they even started talking, just seeing Kamala, uh, Ka the the vice president uh, Kamala Harris, the um, uh, the nominee Katanji Brown Jackson flanking and the, the two of them flanking Biden. I just got I got teary eyed. I just I, I was surprised that I got that I was so moved by it. I mean, I had already been moved, you know, when when Kamala became um, the vice presidential nominee and then the vice president, but. Yeah, you know, it, 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 means, it means a lot. It means a lot. It means that we have a seat at, at yet another table. Mm -hmm. What is it like for you in the children's literature industry as a, as a Black woman and as a woman? I think both of those, the intersectionality of both of those um, matter. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I don't know what it's like. I don't know what it would be like if I were some, someone other than a Black woman. So I don't have it, I don't have a whole lot to compare it with, but I do know that um, you know even though these books get published that I write and that other um, African Americans write, they are still at risk of being marginalized, um, of being you know pigeonholed as only maybe they're only for Black kids. No, they're not only for Black kids. They're for kids of all colors because not only do Black kids need to see themselves in books, but other kids need to see us in books too, because they may only experience each other sometimes vicariously through books. You know, we may, we don't necessarily, you know, our schools are, many, many of our schools are segregated. So we may not have the chance for that social interaction, but books can open up the world for, for kids and, and it's important. But again, you know, it, the, we are at risk of being marginalized in the marketplace if you go into a uh, majority-owned bookstore, you know, we don't have a whole lot of shelf space and you can't necessarily find the books. And there's usually a black section, you know, in the adult department, but not in the children's department. So you really have to look and they're not necessarily, the bookstores are not necessarily carrying um, our titles. Mm -hmm. And school libraries are not necessarily buying them either. I mean, I've got 60 books. I can remember going to a school library and I'm talking too long on this, but uh, it was outside of Memphis and uh, the librarian said final after the assembly where they had the whole school packed into this uh, into the cafeteria for me to present. Um, can you come into the library and sign, you know, autograph uh, books right 
And so she pulled out one book, Moses, and I said, wow. you have, where are the rest? You have any others? Where are the rest? That's all we have. You know, we have a limited budget. I looked all around this big library. I said, certainly, you know, I've got 60 some books. Certainly you could have afforded, you know, some other books. Yes. And it's to, if they have a school library so that, you know, that, right, that too, there's that too, but yes. this was in an affluent white area. Yeah. And that, yeah, so they had a school library. Yeah. And that, that too comes back to understanding uh, cultural, dif- you know, like uh, differences and understanding that how those different um, aspects play a part of the collection and collecting okay. for that too. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I thought um, was important was one, one time Grace Lynn asked the question, can you name five women illustrators? And that blew my mind. But then it yeah. took one step further. Can you name five black women illustrators? Mm. And I was just like, so I wanted to think too. And they're more now. They're more now. There are. And to, more now. and to be able to name them is important as well. So I would kind Let of me try. Wanna, Let me try. Yes. Um, well, Aqua Holmes, I'll start with her because she's, I think she's the only, no, Aqua Holmes and, um, uh, Demetria Takumbo of, uh, of all my books, those are the only two black female illustrators. Oh, Laura Freeman. So those are three, three, 60 books. I've only worked with three black illustrators, uh, black female illustrators. And I'm going to throw uh-huh. Nina Cruz in there yes. and um, Jan Spivey Gilchrist and Vashti Harrison and April Harrison and Vanessa Brantley Newton. Yes. Um, and I'm missing people, um, but yeah, I've, I got my five. Elizabeth Zunin is, is that Oh yeah, Elizabeth Zunin, that's right. I, I forgot about Liz, yeah. I forget, yes, yes, about, yes. I forget about, I, I'm not really, I don't think I'm forgetting about the illustrator books. Oh. I, I forget about the books sometimes. I know, because I was like, it's so many. I was just, yeah. you know, but I was just like, so it's important too to recognize women illustrators as it well, is. because they're just yeah. as important as telling the story. Yeah. You know, like they they're hand in hand with the with the um, author and so, the illustrators are really the rock stars of the industry. I mean, they get I mean, they get celebrated in schools and, you know, in, and at library conferences. Um, and the males, are, the males tend to be the rock stars of the industry. And, you know, maybe that's um, we could look at other industries where that's also true. But I mean, that is that is the case. I mean, when I when I present with my son, that uh, he's of course he's young and handsome too. But uh, and he's an illustrator, and he and he and he uh, is a rapper. So the kids are much more excited about him when I go to school when we do school business together. But they're uh, excited about you too. That's fine with me. <laughs> they just think I'm an old lady who's with you. Uh. <laughs> So, you know, developing co- the, the content creators, like you said, oftentimes are, you know, not recognized. And like you said, because you, you are a woman, it's really uh, interesting to, to think about that. But these young people at that early age, they're kind of nurtured into that thought process. So we have to really be careful. And that's why it's so great that uh, you are on today to remind them that, hey, we uh, here's a, a, a rock star. And we need to remind our uh, librarians and educators who are out there, uh, tune in with us to make sure uh, your books are in place. Very quickly, uh, I just got a text from someone. I told them they should put it in the chat box. But someone wanted to know about uh, your upbringing. Who nurtured your love of writing about children? Uh, my, uh, my own, my, well, my, I was, I'm a child of educators. I made up my first poem in first grade. I said it for my mother on the car ride home from school. She parked the car 
asked me to say it again and she wrote it down. I continued to write in the early grades and my dad, who was a high school printing teacher, uh, had his students use my poems, some of my early poems as typesetting exercises. So I got my poems on like little index cards, you know. Uh, I saw my work in print at a very early age, um, had no idea that uh, an author was a career path. I loved, always loved to read. My parents read to me, I read, you know, I read on my own, but I had no idea that the people who were writing the books that I so loved to read were number one, alive, and number two, getting paid to write the books. And then when I got, you know, and in college, you know, in, in the African-American culture at that time in particular, this is in the, like the 70s, um, pursuing a creative career was not viewed as practical. And, and I mean, it's still not, not viewed as practical, but I mean, I was, you know, I was afraid to pursue any kind of creative career. So I went into PR public relations, but had a poem published in, uh, in a city magazine in Baltimore. And that, when I saw my work in print by someone other than my dad, and in a publication that was not, you know, a school publication, because I had been published in school publications, I got it in my head that I'm a poet and I'm going to be an author one day. So I was about 25 um, when that happened. Uh, and I've been on this path ever since. And when Jeffrey was a kid, um, I took him and uh, his sister to the library, the library story time, and they were exposed to um, some what were known as at that time multicultural books. Now we call them diverse books that had not right. been around when I was a kid. And a light bulb went off on my head because I was I was writing poetry for adults and writing for magazines and stuff. And the, I, I thought maybe I could write for kids. And yeah, maybe I could. And it turned out that I, while they were in their little story time, I'd be borrowing books from the library about how to write children's books. And and by you know, getting borrowing books, they're, they're, the books that, that they borrowed became my mentor text. One in particular I want to pull out uh, that's written and illustrated by a Black woman is uh, Faith Ringgold's Tar Beach. Yes, yes. Can I ask both of you, how have y'all influenced each other in terms of, you know, your relationship and in terms of your work? Okay, I, can I start, Mom? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, since you, you came first, right? I, uh, I grew up around my mom, of course, and she was always uh, who she is today, I, I would say. Uh, she was always writing from as long as I can remember. Uh, when we were, my sister and I, when we were younger, you know, we were helping with uh, PR, you know, sending out letters and stuff, doing the envelopes and stamping stuff. Didn't understand, you know, what we were doing uh, at that age, going to presentation. Let me just say that he got paid. <laughs> I got paid. It wasn't just child labor. It wasn't just child labor. We also got paid. So yes, everybody out there watching. We're good. Okay. So also going to presentations with her, you know, seeing her uh, do performances, essentially, reading her poetry, talking to schools. So I was uh, immersed in the in the world of children's books from a very from a very young age. And then, I mean, I, I guess it's hard not to to have something rub off, if you if you will. And eventually, when the opportunity presented itself, you know, my my foot was in the door and. I swung the door open. So. And for me, um, Jeffrey is, um, I've, I've got two 
probably more than I, I probably have more than more than two muses. But one muse is uh, Billie Holiday. Of course, she's not not alive, so it's you know she's kind of an ethereal muse. And but Jeffrey is a, is a muse for me as well. He inspires me, and I get I, I really get inspired when we work on projects together, or even when I watch him work on a project um, of his own. Um, it's just very inspiring that, um, you know, someone that I helped bring into the world could exude the kind of um, creative spirit that he that he has. So um, oh, sometimes I create, yeah. I, I try to come up with projects uh, just for him, like we, um, just for his style of art, he, he creates some scratch wood. So we got a project we've been working on for a while about MC Escher. Um, and we've talked about doing something about jellyfish and, you know, so there's some projects that are, that are conceived, you know, with, with him in mind. Right. Can I ask you, especially uh, for Jeffrey, when you're growing up and I'm assuming, but you can clarify this, that your knowledge of black history was beyond, you know, like what to me, because I'm reading some of these, some of the her titles and I'm just like I didn't know this person and I'm grown you know what I mean so what was it like having this this you know like the affirmation of your identity if you will um well I mean you know my mom always encouraged me to be me I pretty much at every point there was never any uh I want to say there was I can't remember any point where she said Jeffrey you shouldn't do that because of x y and z or Jeffrey maybe you should pursue something uh that is going to be you know stable or whatever uh the parents tell kids these days but she always encouraged me and she always nourished the the creative energy that I was presenting so you know I was I was always doodling I got in a lot of trouble for doodling when I was young um but my mom didn't tell me to stop doodling uh she put me into art classes uh so whatever uh anything literally anything that I ever wanted to do she would encourage me when I said that I, I want to be a rapper. She bought me a microphone and we turned one of my rooms into a studio. And yeah, it's really just the, the support. You know, I can't say that I was always extremely uh, aware of my self-identity. Like that came, you know, later in life. You know, I would have experiences. I, I grew up in a predominantly white area I was like this isn't right this situation isn't right what they're saying isn't right but you know I don't really I didn't have a point of reference or understanding of how wrong some things were that were going on um, and it wasn't until you know I started to, I went to a HBCU I went to Winston-Salem State University uh, and then I went to Howard University uh, for my master's degree and that's when I really got the the perspective that I have today and the, the understanding uh, that I've gained about, you know, the things that are going on in the world. Once you are aware, you know, you can't, you can't really go back. So that was a combination of, you know, the, the energy that she allowed me to journey through, um, as well as, you know, my professors at these different universities. So. And, and he may be forgetting that when um, we took family vacations, we always dragged the kids along to, um, uh, historical historic sites. Um, we went to um, the Birmingham. We went to Birmingham, and we went in 16th Street Baptist Church and the Civil Rights Institute, and we we went to museums of, about um, the slavery era. And it was uncomfortable for our kids. They would, you would, Jeffrey would get angry sometimes. I can remember one time I 
I thought I had lost him in a museum and he was sitting on a bench in a room stewing. And he said, this, uh, it was an exhibition about slavery. He said, this makes me angry. And he was about seven years old. And I said, well, yeah, you should be angry. So he was exposed to culture um, and history um, as those opportunities presented themselves for, for our family. And we always had books, uh, black books in the home as well. And he had an extensive library at home and there were as many uh, diverse titles as we could get our hands on in, in our home library for, for the adults and for the children. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good point too, to kind of pivot a little bit. You uh, wrote books about Dorothea Lange and Nancy Pelosi, which some might, you know, like think are, in a sense outside of, you know, some of the scope of what you normally do. Why were those two two um, women chosen, um, you know, as an interest for books, if you will? Well, because those women were barrier breakers. And, you know, although they're, they may seem like they're, you know, outside of my wheelhouse, because, you know, in, in this culture, we have to learn about white people. Um, they're not out, that's my wheelhouse too. Mm -hmm. You know, although I, you know, people may not think I own it or, you know, when, when people talk about um, own voices, they say, well, how, how can you write about uh, this or that or the other that's, you know, centered in, in, in white culture? Well, it's because I was raised in white culture, you know, because I'm, because I'm American, you know, I, I was raised in that culture and I've had to learn about it. And I admire Nancy Pelosi because she did break the, the marble ceiling at the, at the US Capitol to become the first woman speaker. And she's also a Baltimorean and I'm, I'm really proud of that, I'm from Baltimore. Yeah, and Dorothy Lange, I, I came upon by way of um, Gordon Parks, both of, whom, both of them were um, uh, photographers during the Great Depression for the government. And they went out across the country to document uh, what American life was like. And I'm gonna I'm gonna let my dog in while keep okay, I was saying it sounds like Gigi is upset right now. One of the things too I think that were interesting about these two books when she's talking about uh, both of these photographers is that both of them their photography is so prolific and important that it could be used for writing prompts. Just looking at their primary work, absolutely. What I thought was um, significant about these two titles and how they kind of. Um, work in tandem with each other. I was saying how these two- Right, um, I heard you. Yeah, yes. they do. And, they, and they're, they're, they're published by the same uh, company, Albert Whitman. Uh, the Gordon Parks book came first, was uh, successful, won a, um, an NAACP Image Award. And I was, just, I was just kind of looking at my royalty statements and I said, that, that book is probably one of my um, better selling titles. Um, you know, nonfiction is not like, um, fiction where the, you know, it sells a million copies or anything most of the time. Uh, but a lot of people seem interested in, in that book and Gordon Parks. And uh, my aunt was a friend of Gordon Parks. So I kind of, I became interested in, in him uh, through doing picture research for an early book that I wrote called Remember the Bridge, Poems of the People. And that's when, where I discovered, when I discovered the Library of Congress uh, photo prints and photographs department and particularly the Farm Security Administration um, collection, which contains the photographs that those government photographers took across the country during the Great Depression. And there were probably about 15 or 20 different photographers who worked uh, for either the Farm Security Administration or the um, 
uh, the Office of War, the War Department, it was called. That's what the Pentagon was called at that time. And they documented the American experience at that, at that time. And can I just say too that the Library of Congress website is a great resource for educators and parents to use uh, for images for classroom experience. I just want no to second that. Definitely used yeah. for illustrations, many hours, many an hours. Um, you can get lost on it though if you're really into picture research like I am. Yeah. It maps everything. Yeah, everything. everything. Songs, videos, yes. everything. Great. Hey, hey Jeffrey, really quick. Uh, not quick, but um, you you are uh, in a in a great position um, as a young man who has had an opportunity. And your mother spoke about it earlier to be pulled and dragged and taken to all these wonderful historical sites mm -hmm. uh, to uh, kind of part of it is a family vacation, but obviously it nurtured you into the career uh, where you are today. Um, what do you say to parents, you know, and particularly fathers, you know, um, many fathers, uh, and, and I get it, you know, they see uh, a, a, a football player who just signed a $200 million contract and, you know, and they see their son make bigger run fast when he chased his son and he want to lean his son toward, you know, hey, maybe my son has potential to be the next, you know, $200 million athlete. But oftentimes mm -hmm. these children also have gifts of, of uh, drawing, you know, because oftentimes we don't put uh, utensils in the hand of our children and, you know, books oftentimes, you know, we, we never really find out uh, that skill. So how, you know, there's no magic words per se, but just some words that you would say to, in particular fathers, uh, about their children, um, boys, uh, really uh, nurturing that talent they may have. Okay. I mean, absolutely. I I personally, I'm not a fan of sports. You know, they they say that really, if you want to keep people distracted, give them bread and circus. That's that's old. Uh, that's old Roman. You know, it has no purpose. Uh, they pay these people more than they pay people who save lives. So at the end of the day, there's way more avenues that you can make a living. And these athletes, it, after the fact fathers out there if you want your son to have you know arthritis broken bones hip joint problems then by by all means send them down that path if that's what you want to do to each their own okay but you know i'm not going to have those problems when when i'm older why well, we'll pray we'll say that i'm not going to have those problems can't say but statistically speaking these athletes they have issues when they get older and you know, although the money is great, if your health isn't there to enjoy it, then it's nothing. Then it's nothing. Yeah, and everybody's but everybody's body is not built for it either. Even if the person wants to, you know, take that take that abuse. I mean, yeah, and I'm there's such a small percentage. I mean, minuscule percentage of the of the kids who go from you know who play these sports all through school, and then there's a small percentage that get college college scholarships, and then even smaller percentage. That get to go that get to go pro, and some of them have put so much emphasis on the sports over literacy and over um, education, and the schools are not invested. The schools that give you the scholarships, it, a lot of them are not invested in the education of the athletes. They just you know they just want those revenues from those from you know from those NCAA games and the, the TV broadcast. And the kids graduate, the, the young men graduate 
and they don't have the skills they need to function in society. Yep. I, I have had, I have several friends who were top tier athletes in high school and in college. And at the end of college, they didn't, it didn't happen for them. And one of my friends, like, it was literally like the world, literally his world. He had trained his entire life, assuming that he was going to become part of the, the NFL. You know, he wasn't going to take no for an answer, but guess what? He had to take no for an answer because if they say no, you're not making it. Yeah. I and mean, then he had to choose a completely different do, career you know, path. So all you have to do is look at, look at what they've done to Colin Ka- Kaepernick. Why would you want your child to be part of a plantation? I was going to bring that up too, because look look also at his documentary, how he pointed out Romare Bearden and how he had another skill set outside of athletics, how he talked about him as an artist, you know, Mm. and and, and that athleticism wasn't everything that he was more than that, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I just, you know, I, in a way I, 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 I probably, maybe I shouldn't even say this publicly, but I'm going to say it. I'm almost glad that he did what he did and that that door closed because he has so much to offer. And I said, what if he had continued on the field and gotten that concussion thing? And that, that inter- his intellect was in some way damaged. We'd all be losers as a result because he has so much to offer, so much more to offer um, outside of sports. Mm-hmm. Hey, Not that the NFL was right. The NFL was wrong, and they're still wrong. But he's got so much more to offer than that. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is Patrick Oliver. Uh, I'm here with Tiffany Fontenot, and we are part of uh, the co-founders or co-facilitators of We Are Here Lit. Uh, we're celebrating Women's History Month, and uh, we have spe- two special guests: uh, Carol Boston Whitford and her son Jeffrey are here with us. We are doing a monthly uh, uh, interviews and uh, we're so excited to have this one next month. We're doing National Poetry Month, which is April and uh, followed by, we're gonna do something around June is Black Music Month. So a a lot of great interviews coming up, but again, we're excited to have this uh, interview today. And very quickly, speaking of poetry, you mentioned you start off poetry at a young age. I, and I, and I, reading your books, I kind of see that poetry flow mm-hmm. in, in your writing. Is that part of kind of your process? You know, you, you think poetically. In, in your- I do. I'm, I I call poetry my first literary language, and it's always my first inclination when I'm writing something to write it as a poem. Um, so most of my books are poems. Um, uh, among the recent ones that aren't. Um, Let's see, um, Elijah, Cum- uh, it's called uh, The Faith of Elijah Cummings. That's not poetry, that's prose. Right. Uh, Freedom on the Menu is, is actually my best-selling book and that's prose. Um, and I've got some other books that are written in prose, but most of my books are poetry, whether they're free verse or rhyming poetry. Jeffrey and I have a book coming out together um, that's uh, about rap. Jeffrey, you wanna tell them about that one? Absolutely, so, well, it started first is a uh, okay. I'll just get I'll get to the to the base part of it. It's about a, a child who uh, he grew up basically like me around somebody who is a poet, and 
he came out the womb rapping essentially. And he's telling a story about how he uh, came to have these skills and he's teaching through the story. So telling about hip hop, uh, what's involved, how to perform it, what do you need to do? How do you get good at it? Yeah, essentially how to how to become how to write your own uh, 16 and it's called Martin Cadence or no, it's, MC. No, it's, not. it's called Wrap It Up. Remember? Wrap it up. Wrap it up. I'm you changed in, the title. Change the title. It's OK. Wrap it up. It'll, he'll always be Martin Cadence to me. But yeah, either that's, way, that's the character. That's that the character's name in his head. Yeah. But the character's not named uh, in the book. But it does go through um, like the, the different parts of speech that you can use, uh, figurative language that you can use and. Um, then the back, the glossary has, uh, there's a glossary that tells what these different, you know, these tricks of the tree of the wordsmith trade are, uh, you know, like onomatopoeia and metaphor and, you know, alliteration, all, all the literary devices that are, yeah. that are present, exactly. the common ones. Exactly. When is this coming out? Uh, uh, I'm not sure, but it's being illustrated by, um, a mural, a mural artist uh, from Philadelphia, and I can't recall his name uh, right now, but it, the, Theodore, Harris, Theodore Harris. I beg your pardon? Theodore Harris, is that his name? I don't know. Okay. It might be. I don't know. I just can't remember. I'll look it up. Why don't I look it up while we're, okay. and I'll, I'll tell you something later, later in this chat, I'll tell you. While we're on that topic of um, hip hop and poetry, what are some of the kind of, um, a lot of teachers want to use hip hop in classrooms and things like that. What are some of the things that are important to think about as they do this? Because it can be powerful or it can, mm -hmm. you know, uh, be otherwise. What are some of your thoughts being a poet and an MC? Um, do you want to start, Mom? No, you go ahead. You go okay, ahead. Okay, cool. So. My personal definition of hip hop is higher infinite power healing our people, right? There's a, there's a way to present hip hop in the classroom. And it's not just by, you know, turning on the radio and letting kids listen to it. There's songs that have substance and content that can elevate and educate at the same time. And that's the type of, that's the type of content that needs to be presented. So like, for instance, uh, I'll give one example right now. There's a, there's a, uh, he's a poet. He's a, he's a real MC by the name of Londrell, right? You know, he doesn't curse in his raps. All of his uh, rap, all of his, all of his content is like extremely elevated. Like, you know, go into yourself and assess and breathe deep and just esoteric hip hop, essentially finding uh, yourself, finding purpose, that type of thing. And, you know, being kind to others, like spreading love. So, that's person just one example. There's there's plenty of artists who are uh, putting out content that is suitable for a young mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I you know I just think that you know whether it's hip hop is poetry first of all. Absolutely. You know, just like other poetry has a place in the classroom, hip hop has a place a place in the classroom, and poetry can be used as a mnemonic device, something to help help kids remember, remember things. Exactly. Um, just like just like nursery songs are used. You know, we teach kids the ABC with the ABCs with, you know, with the AB with the alphabet song. So I think, you know, we need to leverage it for what it is and use it, use it to our advantage and understand that different kids learn different ways. So there are kids who can read something 
They're kids who got to get moving. They're kids who are tactile learners. They're kids who are uh, oral learners. And so we, we've got to teach to all those kids at the same time. And so hip hop is just one tool in, in the educator's toolbox. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, again, I'm just going to continue to piggyback because I've had many, I teach you know, a, a hip hop workshop and I've taught it to, I don't know how many kids at this point, but one, one uh, child in particular, he, he, uh, he was, um, essentially he was in a, he was in foster care right? Uh, to make the story as short as possible. And he was having confidence issues and just a hard time getting up in, in front of people and just talking, essentially. And by the end of the hip hop workshop, you know, he had, he, he was up and he was rapping to everybody. Like, it was a, like, a metamorphosis, if you will. And I know, like, personally, for me, you know, I've, I've been through a lot of things. And hip hop was even therapy, like at a point, like I, I told stories um, about myself on the mic that I had never spoken about before. So in, in at that point, you know, the story that was on me was just, you know, it was very dark. And if I hadn't said and told people about it, I wouldn't realize that, you know, my pain is not mine to just hold on to. Right. A lot of these these hip hop artists, you know, they're not they're not doing anything but expressing the things that they feel so others know that they're not alone. Right. At the end of the day, people just need to know that they're, they're, they're not alone. And one thing that hip hop has done, it, it, uh, it has democratized um, expression because anybody who has a phone can record do you know do, they can put some beats together they can record some record some rhymes and i mean i can't but <laughs> you can now you got to speak can. life into yourself other people can um <laughs> they, they can they can express themselves and the one thing that i have always wanted kids to understand um since i've been presenting is that their thoughts and their feelings are valid enough to share to document to express. And that can be therapeutic and cathartic. And as Jeffrey said, healing for some people. I mean, it, it, your words, your words, your expression can not only be healing for you, but like you said, they can find the ears of someone who needs to hear it and heal that person as well. A person you Absolutely. may not ever realize will be healed by your words or by your art. Yeah. So important. It is. It is. So, you know, so parents, you know, who um, are a little scary because their kids are going into creative uh, careers, you know, want to be a visual artist or a poet or um, a dancer or whatever. It's important work. It's very important work. You know, think about what a dismal place this world would be without the arts. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's a perfect- And art is political. Art is political statement. too. You know, we can make political, you know, art is almost always political. You know, whether we, whether we admit it or not. Right. Yeah. If I could swing, swing back on that topic of, of um, being political and we're t in, in the age of when we're seeing censorship of this wave of censorship and of literature and, and inevitably it will extend to other forms of art. It's just starting here per se. Mm -hmm. but what are your thoughts about that? Because, you know, um, it's really a wave of, of anti-Blackness is how it's starting. Um, right. Right. And, but, and it's a slippery slope. I mean, it starts with anti-Blackness and then we get into um, 
anti-gay. Anti I mean, it's our, that's already manifesting in all these, you know, in Florida with don't say gay and now Texas. And, um, and, and then we get into, you know, the anti-Asian and the whole, the whole undercurrent that I keep waiting for, you know, the, for all the white women out there who's still voting, voting in the, the wrong way to understand is it's all about y'all. It's all about women. They want to control you. Yeah. They want to control you, but they want, but they're trying to get it. You know, they, if they can't control you, they're going to control us. You know, they want to control, and by they, I mean, the, you know, white males who have had the power and have, whose, whose greed has been making the decisions and fueling this, this, this enterprise that's the United States since uh, 1619. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, it, this, it's a very slippery slope, censorship. Very slippery slope, and yeah. and they know they they don't just want to control um, the people who are you know well politicians are are, are fueling the bands and, and they're mobilizing uh, people at, at the local level, parents at the local level. They want to control not only what their kids can read and learn, they want to control what your kids can read and learn, and that's so dangerous because they want they don't want you to learn about yourself. Yes. They don't want you to know your history because that's how powerful it is. Yeah, they understand. They understand what they're doing or else they wouldn't be doing it. Exactly. Just like all of the all of the history that we've been that's been uh, outside of our education, right? They they don't tell us the the great feats of African nations, you know, our history starts at you were a slave on a boat. You were you were you were our property. That's where you belong. And then you don't learn anything else like until civil rights. Like then we freed you. Abraham Lincoln, by the grace of his white skin, freed you. Yes. One of the things when we talk, one of the books that are is in, in question, you know, like is up there is unspeakable. What I thought too was interesting about this, um, because I, I happen to read another book about this, this page here where it's where it has like the oil rigs and stuff like that. What it meant for me and what I've taught a lot of teachers is it's not just about to the, the race massacre, but when I look at this, there's an indigenous piece of this. Indigenous people owned a lot of land that had oil they on it. They took that, they took that land. Yeah. And, and to talk about how indigenous women were married off to get their land rights. Mm -hmm. Right. A lot of people don't know about that. Mm -hmm. But when I looked at this and I'm like, I don't know if this but like when I, I a coworker and I happened to to work on teaching this book and like the symbolism of this and how we brought it into teaching this to second, you know, like this book should be taught used in high school to talk about these things. And, you know, like that part of it. Um, it's more than just what was happening with black people. There was also what was happening with indigenous people in Tulsa as well. So it. It's intersectional and, and, and right. very definitely. What that's going to definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's always, you know, another another story like um, you know, the Tuskegee Airmen story. Um, there was, um, you know, at the same time, these men were training to become the first pilots, first black pilots in the U.S. military. They could hardly go off their base in Tuskegee without, you know, be, fear of being lynched. You know, so they had to stay very close to home. They were, you know, they saw um, German POWs getting treated better in the United States than they themselves were treated. Um, you know, they had to they had to go across the ocean 
on a ship that had a rope across dividing the white troops from the black troops. So, and then there was the double victory campaign, um, the double V campaign that black newspapers started and it meant victory abroad in, in World War II and victory at home against racism. And that, that was largely, um, you know, white folks didn't like the double V campaign, but you know, it, it was the truth. Yeah, and nobody so we likes to... on all that. We touch on all that in, in the Tuskegee book. Right on, right on. And something that I, a, a point that I just wanted to, it's like on me, black people have been allies to this, to this country against our will, you know, since the conception of the country. And somebody told me today that, you know, we need to, black people need to be allies. And I'm, I'm literally like, I love, I literally love everybody. I have zero issues with anybody that doesn't have an issue with me, but allyship. I'm tired of being an ally and giving that energy and it never being reciprocated because it's never reciprocated. Yeah. And that's what um, uh, the coach um, Dungey um, said that we have loved America, but America has not loved us back. Never. Not for a second. I love this fact. And that's why it's so important that we have to love our kids and encourage our kids and build them up um, through the knowledge that we pour into them uh, with books and with uh, by taking them to the library. You know, a lot of these things are free. And I mentioned taking Jeffrey. Yes, we went to some different places on vacation. The vacations cost money, but some of the places we took them were free. And every time that there was an opportunity in our area to see something, uh, learn something about African American culture. We went there, and 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 he'll pro he, he and his sister would protest. They like, do we have to go somewhere educational? <laughs> we would. Yes, you do. We would. Yes, you do. <laughs> I've right, and of course, that. that's you know important, important, an important foundation of who I am today. So yeah. thanks, mom. Yeah. Of course, it comes You're back welcome. around. Yeah, drags, yes. it drags <laughs> you around. Right, right. We got a couple of questions here. Um, I want to get to the we, we're about what, eight minutes away, six minutes away from uh, finishing up. Uh, Brandon Campbell had a question about what advice do you have for a new author wanting to self-publish a kid's book? Where, where would they start and what is the best resources for them? Well, there are lots of platforms that you can self-publish. Uh, we've used um, Amazon Kindle. Kindle Direct uh, Kindle. Publishing. Yeah, Kindle Direct Publishing. Um, but I would say... Um, you know, whether you want to self-publish or be published by um, a mainstream publisher, um, small, whether it's small press or large, don't rush yourself, you know, put your time into your craft, you know, perfecting your craft. Uh, because be, since anybody can publish now through Amazon Kindle or up the, these other platforms, everything that's self-published is not necessarily quality and it doesn't necessarily even sell. You know, people don't necessarily even make money off of it. So, you know, although that, and that used to be called vanity, you know, vanity publishing. Um, so don't don't rush yourself. Understand that if you have a gift, then it needs give it time to develop, to grow. Writing is a developmental process. I think art, you know, you have to practice. You know, they talk about your, your studio, your practice. It, there's a reason they keep talking about practice because Jeffrey, I'll let you take it from there, Jeffrey. I mean, practice makes perfect. There's no way that you're going to be great at anything by not 
participating in that skill, right? I, I don't know how many pictures of hands I've drawn in my life. Like I, there was one whole semester, I feel like I was just drawing my hand in different positions because I felt like I couldn't draw hands. And, you know, as an artist, that's a, that's a necessity, right? So, and outside of that, uh, even spending 24, 48 hours on one piece of art, you know, there's a massive level of dedication that it takes to be successful, right? The, the easy road is usually not going to lead to much and the hard road leads to, you know, greatness. That's pretty much how things go. If you, if you choose the easy road all the time, you know, life's going to be hard. But if you choose the hard road, then life's going to be easy. Yeah, I think I too, that path of least resistance. That's a great lesson too. When when students or or young people are learning how to write, and it seems so frustrating that you just don't want to deal with it, but it's it's just a, a practice to keep right. building on things. Like don't give up because that your voice is so important. Your Absolutely. Voice. And I would say, you know, for parents, you know, often in in a classroom you know, kids are being timed with their writing and they may not have time to rewrite, but rewriting is the most important part of the writing process. And if you want your child to become a better writer, have them rewrite things they've already written, even if they're not gonna get graded on it. You know, it's, and the, the kids, kids are gonna hate me for this. You have them rewrite, you know, if they get a paper that's graded, well, okay, how can you improve this? Rewrite it. And that shows them that when they rewrite, they get it R-I-G-H-T, they get it right. And it gets, with each revision, it gets better and better and better. So don't let your kid just, you know, write a paragraph and then, oh, oh it's, you know, the periods at the end and write their name. No, let's look at it and rewrite. You could, you could make this better, rewrite it. And two, writing about things that you just love, like to write about, just right. at home, just that write too. about those things that you just like and just let it go and just let it be for what it is and Exactly. That too. That too. Yeah, you have to enjoy it, you know. And another part to that is too is to attend, I mean, events like this where writers like yourself, you and Jeffrey, you're sharing uh, your wisdom, your techniques, your process, you know. And so there are writer conferences that are, you know, writing conferences that are all over internet that are featuring, again, people like yourself that people should attend more of so you can get firsthand knowledge, firsthand information. Absolutely. I would love to piggyback off what you're saying there, because every room that I have been a participant in at this point in my life, I've gotten to by standing on the shoulders of giants. Every single room that I've been in, I didn't, you know, I'm not going to claim any of the knowledge or anything like that, because, you know, I've had mentorship, mentorship, tons, tons of mentorship. I was always Anything that I ever wanted to do, and my mom will clarify this, I'm always investing in myself. I don't care how much it costs, whatever. I will literally, if something, if somebody has knowledge that I think is, will help me get to a level that I want to get to, I am going to them and I am going to be like, hey, how much is, how much is mentorship? Or can you teach me what you're doing? Like, what's, what, how do I get to where you are? Right. And that's what you have to do. You can't be afraid to ask questions. Right. Because a person who asks questions is a fool only for that second. But a person who never asked the question is a fool forever. Yeah. Part of my teaching philosophy is, 
it's more important to ask questions than to know the answers. Because mm-hmm. the, answers, the answers are out there, but you gotta ask the questions. That is key. I love that. The mentorship and the questions, that's, that is a life lesson, a life lesson. Yes. Um, one last thing, I was wondering if you had a message for young people, especially young black males, um, to promote giving agency and a voice and storytelling, poetry and visual arts. What, what are some of the things that, if there was a message that you can give them, what would it be outside of what you already shared? Well, your voice and your vision matter. Share it. Yeah, your voice and your vision matter. You know, life, life is going to try and break you. I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything about this. Like everything that the society is, is not meant for you to feel good and to get ahead, right? You have to speak life into yourself because nobody is going to speak life into you, into you right? Outside of your parents, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, because I am, I'm, I've been lucky. I've, my, my parents are always speaking life, but I know other parents who don't do that, right? So you have to be your number one. Always. You have to get up in the morning, right? Get up and attack the day. Like nobody is going to be able to accomplish the things that you envision for yourself, but you, right? It's up to you. Believe so that. yeah, that's awesome. That is awesome. Wow. Yes. Thank you both of you so uh, much. Um, I guess those were kind of our closing words. It was so dynamic, but I want to ask if you have any closing words, because those were pretty darn good, but if you have any closing words you want to share with the individuals who have been watching us, uh, who have been part of this conversation today. Well, I'm going to do a plug. Um, please check out our latest collaboration. It's called <laughs> Call Me Miss Hamilton. Um, it's very uh, timely, even though it's about a court case that took place in 1960. It's about um, a, an unsung hero of the civil rights movement, Mary Hamilton, who got arrested, uh, would not um, answer in court to her first name because she heard white people being called Miss and Mister. And she sued with the help of the NAACP all the way to the United States Supreme Court and won. And it is because of the Miss Mary case that uh, plaintiffs, defendants, uh, witnesses, of all colors in court must be addressed with honorific titles such as Miss, Mr. Miss. Now there's a direct line between her, her fight to be called Miss, to be treated with respect and those hearings that took place this past week uh, for Katanji Brown Jackson during which she was disrespected by white male senators. And there are no no black female senators uh, and only one, two black male senators. Uh, and she was um, disrespected, uh, even though she's a federal judge. And so the fight, the struggle continues for uh, African-American women uh, and, and, and people of color in general for uh, us to uh, secure equality and respect. So the book is Call Me Miss Hamilton. It's illustrated by Jeffrey. I have a little poem that I can uh, share about my mom that I wrote. So this poem is called Son to Mother because you should always like all the young people out here looking, you should definitely respect your mom. I'm going to say 99.9% of the time she has your best interest at heart. Okay. 99.9% of the time. So watch out for that other one. one. That's right. So son to mother, 
A queen without a crown is still a queen nonetheless. A queen is a queen by how she thinks and not her dress. A queen inspires ladies everywhere she goes. A queen is still a queen without a regal rose. This queen is a legend and this queen tells the tales of others. And I'm so glad that this queen is my mother. Thank you. I'm done. That was just awesome. Oh, I appreciate that. Was awesome. Yeah, so. just, look at that. Women's History Month came right back around. Got to. Gotta gotta end it on the on the women's history month now. Yes. 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 Hey, quick Thank shout you so much. The folks with the comments in the comment section, Brandy, Judy, uh, Emily Black, Georgia Morris. Thank you so much for your comments and your questions. Yes, appreciate everybody tuning in. Thank you. Yes. And and thank you. Well, I just want to give you your roses now for just creating uh, this legacy in terms of your books, because, you know, these are just an, an amazing, um, amazing storytelling. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Both. Yes. Thank you. Both. Bye. Peace. Take care, everyone. Peace and love. Thank you. And thank you for having us. Thank you. For coming to you. <laughs> I'm sorry. We are. There you go.